This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. episode, Valeria Tellis interviews Nate Terrell, the author of Achieving Self-Compassion, Giving Yourself the Gifts of Happiness and Inner Peace. Nate teaches how we can achieve self-compassion and find greater happiness and inner peace by being our own best friend, developing beliefs that work for us, knowing we are inherently worthy, not projecting our needs onto others, choosing happiness and peace of mind, taking great care of ourselves, tuning in to our authentic self, eliminating negative reactions, appreciating what we already have, enjoying the present moment. Nate Terrell has witnessed and experienced the healing and transformative power of these strategies in his work with clients and his own quest to be more self-compassionate. He lists additional strategies that we can begin using today to live our lives with abundance, fulfillment, and serenity. We deserve it. Many people believe that it is selfish to be self-compassionate. However, there is nothing selfish about eliminating self-criticism, treating ourselves with kindness, feeling worthwhile, being happy, transcending our worries, or finding a peaceful place within. These gifts, which we can give to ourselves at any moment, will fill us with positive energy and caring that we can pass on to others. Nate Terrell is also a therapist in private practice in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. He provides coaching and training on self-compassion, mindfulness, and many other related topics. You can sign up for self-compassion coaching on Nate's website, achievingselfcompassion.com. Here is the interview with Nate Terrell. In your own words, who is Nate Terrell? I would say I am somebody that always strives to be as compassionate and loving as I can. I try to live with integrity. I try to be open to feedback, although that's sometimes different, difficult. Uh, I try to reinvent myself when I need to. And I would say overall, I've lived a life with a great deal of meaning. I have an older daughter who has special needs um, and she needs a lot of care. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit today about my experiences with my son, who my wife and I adopted, who really got me into self-compassion. So I like to think of myself as eager for learning. Um, and the last couple of years, I've really been focused on finding a peaceful place within myself and basically 
identifying with this peaceful place. So I think I'm less into the outer world that I used to be. I'm more into the inner peace, which I know you're really big on. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nate, for what you do and the way you have described living your life. That sounds really good to me. Uh, I have a few warm-up questions before we talk about your book, Achieving Self-Compassion, Giving Yourself the Gifts of Happiness and Inner Peace. And the first warm-up question is, what is life? I would say life is an opportunity to create meaning, to be loving and compassionate to ourselves and everybody else, to enjoy the moment, to help create a better world, however we can. I'm not sure why we're all here, um, and sometimes I ponder that, but I figure here I am, <laughs> might as well make the best of it. Love that. Um, what do you think is the opposite of life? I would say the opposite of life is when people do not take the opportunity to learn and grow. And I'm not a judgmental person, but unfortunately, so many people don't live their lives fully because of childhood trauma, because of erroneous belief systems, because of their own fears. And so I guess the opposite of life is maybe it's fear. I'm fortunate to have a lot of support to get where I am, but that's that's a great question. I never really quite thought about that. It's it's just not living fully, not enjoying the moment, maybe overthinking things too much. It's a great question. Wow. Yeah, I like that. I like your insights. I have heard that fear is the opposite of love, but I never heard fear as an opposite to life. That's interesting. What is the meaning of freedom to you, Nate? Freedom is the ability to act on our own choices. Freedom is the ability to grow into the people we want to be. Uh, I think freedom is the opportunity to, to create meaning in our lives. And as a white heterosexual middle-class man, I'm certainly well aware that I've had a lot of privileges that have given me maybe greater freedom. Uh, my wife's African-American and we've been together for 35 years and she's had a very successful career, but I'm highly aware of how people of color or often uh, discriminated against or objectified. And so I feel very privileged to have the freedoms that I have. And it's not like my wife hasn't been able to reach her goals. I'm just, it's obviously more stressful being a person of color in our society. So I, I feel like I've had a lot of freedom and I try to make good use of my freedom to, to do what I can to, to help other people. Oh, wow. This is an interesting topic. Do you also think that it's more difficult or challenging for women to be a woman in this world? Do you think that we need more self-compassion? Absolutely. I mean, you know very well, I'm, I'm sure that women are socialized to take care of other people. Oftentimes, when women speak out, it's viewed as selfish or they get negative labels. So many times when I sit here with clients in my office and I encourage them to love themselves and be good to themselves, they almost always say, oh my goodness, I couldn't do that. It's <laughs> selfish. Nice. And I try to explain to them there's nothing selfish about great self-care. There's nothing selfish about taking good care of yourself. Obviously, people of color face a lot of discrimination from the outside world, and so they may internalize negative images of themselves. So it's even more important for them to, to love themselves deeply and recognize, even though they may be getting projections from the outside world, that they're not worthy or don't measure up it doesn't mean that they have to you know, believe these projections. They can hopefully love themselves deeply, but it, absolutely. I mean, would you say it's more difficult for women? Um, 
I don't know. I actually ask the question because I don't know. I usually ask questions when I have an idea for the answer or I don't know at all. And in this case, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't mean to overgeneralize. There are a lot of men that are filled with shame, you know, for sure. And I, I work as much with men along this as I, I do women, for sure. I just think so many women have been beaten down in our society in terms of not really being able to to fully actualize. And and uh, so it's I think we all need it, for sure. And and certainly people with, I don't, actually, I don't like the word disabilities. I don't care if you use it, but everybody has abilities, but there's no really better word. But um, in terms of people with special needs, sure, they get societal projections as well. And so they obviously, I mean, we all need to love ourselves. And and unfortunately, there are people that are highly narcissistic and don't care about other people. And that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about self-compassion. It's not about mistreating other people. And a lot of people are afraid if they're self-compassionate, it might lead them to be narcissistic. But that's not the case. Those are two completely different things, of course. Oh, yeah. And I have some questions for you on that. This is an interesting topic, too. So my next warm-up question is, what do you think is the world's greatest need at this time? I would say the world's greatest need is equity in terms of basic needs, food, water, uh, rights, obviously more love and compassion, um, saving the environment, being able to dialogue with people that we, we differ from. But uh, overall, I, I would say it's it's equity. I, I would say it's racial and social justice. Um, I would say it's getting rid of arrogance, uh, getting rid of people taking advantage of, of other people, for sure. Yeah, yeah. What, where, and who is God to you? Growing up Quaker, I always had believed in an inner light, an inner force that we can turn to uh, for comfort, for well-being, for peace, for happiness, for joy. I don't think there's a God up in the heavens controlling things. If so, why would it cause people to be sitting in detention camps at our border without their basic needs being met? For me, it's a source. It's a stream of, of peace, of love, of abundance that we can all turn to. And I spend a lot of time meditating and going to this inner stream. And, and for me, it's all the same stream. You know, a Buddhist might call it enlightenment. A Christian might say, I'm born again. A, a nature lover might say it's just being at peace, walking in the woods. So I believe deeply in an inner spirit, but I don't know. I, I, some people might call that God. Some people might just call that spirit. But for me, it's a huge part of my life. And, and I'm always trying to get in my stream of inner peace. And, and it doesn't mean I don't function in the outside world. It just means I'm able to do it from a from a better place. Yeah. Do you see a difference between being spiritual and being religious? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful things about religion, for sure. And I've always valued being a Quaker and um, Buddhism isn't really a religion, for sure. But I've been influenced by Buddhism. But religion is obviously, as you know, you know, it's a construct created by people to perpetuate certain beliefs, certain practices. And that's usually very positive, but that can also be negative or dictatorial or dogmatic. So for me, at least, my, my inner sense of, of peace and spirituality really have nothing to do with with religion per se. It just has to do with finding that spot within us. So I, I do see a big difference. And, and oftentimes they go hand in hand, but unnecessarily. Somebody could go to church every day and not have much spirituality. And I know people with deep spirituality that never go to church. So I think it works both ways. And that's true. In your book, you um, I found it very interesting that you mentioned many, many times over and over again, limiting beliefs, unhealthy beliefs, dysfunctional beliefs. 
I find it fascinating, this um, subject of beliefs. So I have some questions for you on that. Uh, but my last warm-up question, what do you think is your main purpose at this time? My main purpose at this time, um, as I think I, I also alluded to earlier, is to be the most loving, compassionate, giving person I can to myself and everybody I encounter to spread goodwill, to help create a better world, to fight for racial and social justice. But also importantly, I need to enjoy the moment. I need to get in my head. I need to relish and appreciate the good things in my life, not overanalyze things. Yeah, that's true. I absolutely agree that we all need to practice that, coming more from the heart, as we call it. Sure. So let's talk about you, your work, and your book, Achieving Self-Compassion. What was the inspiration, intention, and the process of writing Achieving Self-Compassion? Thank you. I love, love that question. <laughs> uh, I grew up in a Quaker family where there was a lot of focus put on helping other people, as I mentioned earlier, and not surprisingly, became a social worker. And this career has brought a lot of meaning into my life. But unfortunately, until recently, I wasn't as good at taking care of myself as I was other people. Um, and about 12 years ago, my wife and I adopted our son. Uh, he came to us when he was nine and he came to us having experienced some, some trauma and some difficult times. So not surprisingly, we had lots of ups and downs and we were driving in my car about six years ago. And he looked at me uh, very abruptly and asked me a question that changed my life. He, he asked me, um, you know what I hate the most about you, dad? <laughs> I was stunned. I mean, come on, what kind of a question is that? And and I said, what's that, buddy? And he said, you think you can make me happy? You think you can take away all of my pain? I said, of course, I love you. I'll do anything for you. Without missing a beat, he said, you can't. That's my responsibility. I need to do that. I need to fix myself. And for one of the first times in my life, I think I was actually speechless. <laughs> but, but eventually I did manage to to ask him, like, what should I do? <laughs> and yeah. he looked right at me and he said, why don't you take care of yourself and leave me alone? He said it in more colorful language, but I'm not going to use the words he used in this podcast, obviously, right. but he was very dramatic about it. <laughs> and you know what I realized? I, I realized he was right. I needed to give him some space to grow and heal himself. So I began to let go of negative self-judgments. I began to, to be my own best friend and talk to myself all the time in a loving, caring way. I started to set better boundaries with other people. I started to do activities that brought me a lot of peace, like going to the woods and meditating and, and reading. And I had an epiphany, and this is the most important message I really have for the world at this point. I discovered as I became more self-compassionate and more self-loving, that it filled me with an abundance of care I could pass on to other people. I could do both at the same time. I did not have to choose between the two of them, obviously. And I have seen this looking at other people. It seems like the people that love themselves the most deeply are also the people with the most to give. So that inspired me to become more self-compassionate. It inspired me to bring this uh, approach into my clinical work with clients and into the classes I teach at Temple University, into my work in schools. I, I go into schools and teach kids how to meditate and love themselves. And it inspired me in a lot of ways. And uh, perhaps most important, it really gave me a, a focus I needed in my life. And, and 
as a result, I wrote my book. It took me about five years. It's only 94 pages. I don't write very fast. but it, uh, uh, And I spent a lot of time trying to get it just right. I guess I was a bit of a perfectionist. But it's been fun to promote my book, to promote my ideas. I put it out on stuff out on LinkedIn. I love to send, give people free copies. And I love to, sometimes just, I just encounter people out and about. I mean, less so with the stay at home stuff, but I get talking with them. And if they seem interested, I just give them a copy of my book. You know, I, I'm using the book to promote this idea. So it's all sort of come together in a really beautiful way for me. Wow. What an interesting yeah, insight that we feel responsible for other people's happiness. I'm wondering why it happens? Why do we have this belief and why it's most of the time easier to love others than to love ourselves? Well, yeah, I think it comes from a good place. I mean, we're taught it's better to to give than receive. Of course, when we're self-compassionate, uh, we're doing both. Um, I think a lot of people give to others what they really want to get back, not from a selfish way, but I think it's some unconscious or pre-conscious, subconscious way. And I, I, I've asked clients this flat out. I, you know, they believe, well, I'm going to give and give and give, and maybe somebody will get back to me what I'm giving out. So what I say to these people is, fine, be a giving, kind, loving person, but give yourself the same love. You know, I've had so many people say to me, well, you, you know, it's okay. It's good, easy for me to love everybody, but I have a hard time loving myself. And I say to them, well, aren't you part of like everybody, you know, and, <laughs> and it usually gets a laugh out of them. So again, we can do both at the same time. And as I said earlier, I think maybe women are particularly socialized to put their needs aside, although I think that's less true with, you know, more recent generations, which is which is powerful. Um, so but it's a good question. Um, it's I, I think a lot of people have guilt taking care of themselves, you know, and, and I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why. Um, it's It's a great question, but it's. But as we become more loving, again, we just we have more to give. So it's a total win win for everybody. Yeah, it is. And you're right, it's a complex answer to give, right, to um, generalize ideas like this one. I have two questions before I ask you other questions. Lots of them I have here about your book and passages and messages that you put out there. How do you define compassion? How do you define self-compassion? And how is self-compassion different from self-love, kindness, empathy, love, and self-care? Yeah. And to me, it's really the same thing. Uh, I define self-compassion as simply how we treat ourselves, how we think about ourselves. Uh, and there's, we can do that in a lot of different ways. We can you know, cut off relationships with the toxic people that make us feel badly. We can be our own best friend, as I said earlier. We can nurture ourselves. We can do things we love. Uh, I think it's sort of all the same thing. Um, now, some people that have written a lot about self-compassion make a distinction between self-esteem and self-compassion. And, and what they say is that self-esteem is always sometimes based on kind of our accomplishments or how we think we rate compared to other people, whereas self-compassion has no limits. And I, I think that's true. But for me, it's, it's also very important to realize we're all worthwhile. Um, it doesn't give somebody the right to go rob a bank and say, hey, I'm just learning to love myself. But I really believe on a very, very deep spiritual level we're all inherently worthy. Certainly people, some people are more productive to society than other people, uh, for sure. But when we start with the basic premise that we're worthy, it's it's so healing because we don't have to do anything special to achieve it. We don't have to make a million dollars or win a beauty contest or have the latest sports car. 
I spend a lot of time in my office just telling people flat out you're lovable and worthwhile. And you're talking about belief change earlier. One of the major things I do is encourage people to try on the belief that they're worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Just try it on. How it feels. Yeah, I like that. I had a client a couple of years ago who came in with a dark cloud over her head and she'd had a, a lifetime of depression. And and at the end of our session, I, I said to her, could you try on for, for just a minute the belief that you're total, totally worthwhile and lovable? And I remember tears just streamed down her face and she sort of whispered, I want to, I want to believe that. And then, of course, once we opened that door of her self-worth, we were able to just do so many things together you know, in our work. But uh, get, getting back to your original question, I think self-love and self-compassion, I think it's all sort of the same thing, really. Yeah. And um, so self-compassion, do you think it is a um, belief? Because you just mentioned that could be become a belief or this is a, a inner wisdom or it comes from that place of raw wisdom or knowing. What would you say when we are there at that place? I would say it's both. That's a great, great question. I love that question. It's a belief that we can have sort of intellectually and cognitively. It's also an action in terms of treating ourselves well. But um, I also know, and you use the word knowing on a deep level. I love that concept. Deep down, we all have an authentic self. We all have an inner voice. We all have a part of us that knows what's best for us. And so self-compassion in a lot of ways is simply listening to that inner voice that knows what's best for us. And for me, that inner voice comes out when I'm in my stream of peace. Uh, and when I'm in that stream of peace, I also feel deeply connected to everybody else in the world. It's not like a selfish thing or a, a, a lonely thing. But I think you're right. I think there's deeper and deeper levels of knowing. And really the, the very essence of self-compassion is to tune into those deeper levels. I agree. I love what you said too now about the inner voice, intuition, authentic self, just be in touch with that. And I'm wondering how do we know for sure when we are listening to the right voice? Another great question, for sure. To me, <laughs> yeah, for sure. it feels differently than just thinking. Mm -hmm. If I, I can debate something in my head, pros and cons, it's an intellectual exercise. When I'm operating out of my deepest wisdom, it just comes from a deeper place. I don't know if it comes from my subconscious. I don't know whether it comes from like a wisdom of a river of knowledge that's been passed down through all of our, our genes, but it's never wrong. When I trust myself at the deepest levels, it never leads me astray. It's always right on target. And it just, again, it feels very different than thinking. I, I can't put it into words. It's just like coming from a different place within me. Do you have a story or a personal experience, the direct experience you had that could illustrate that concept, this idea of listening to the right voice? Well, I've, I've had a lot of them. You know, I've had a lot of them. And I can't think of a specific example at this minute. But what I often do is when I'm going round and round in my head about something, I let it go. And I put it in a, apartment, a, a, a compartment within myself, um, and I just wait. The answer almost, it always comes. Sometimes it's a couple of days later. Sometimes it's when I'm driving in my car or running. It just emerges. And it's always, you know, it's always the right thing. I guess 
with my son, I'll, I'll get back to an example with my son. So oftentimes over the years, I've tried too hard to, to rescue him. I've tried too hard to, I guess, maybe a little controlling in terms of trying to help him. And when I'm able to, 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 to step back from that and, and meditate and go into my deepest wisdom, I often just feel like, wow, this is right. And sometimes I'll actually do a guided meditation and I'll say to him as higher power through my higher power, I love you, I'll do anything for you, but I know I can't take away your pain. I sort of give it back to him, not to make his life harder, but with the knowledge that only he can solve it, as he said earlier. So I guess that's a good example. In my deepest wisdom, I know he can figure things out. He's great at that. He's great at figuring his own life out. And I just need to get out of the way and let him do it. Wow, what a powerful message, Nate, uh, for parents, because I think that might be a challenge, right? For, Absolutely. For parents not to tell their kids what to do exactly, how to do it. Right. Uh, and not trust their inner wisdom. So in a way, you're just putting yourself in a position of a coach and not a rescuer. That's right. It doesn't mean I can't encourage him or buy him his favorite food or fun in life, <laughs> right, but he's, he's in charge. I'm just sitting in the, on the sidelines cheering him on. Yeah, I love that. Do you connect values to beliefs? Absolutely. You know, absolutely. And I think what we need to do is orient our beliefs how we live our lives to our deepest values within ourselves. You know, I, I talk a lot with my clients about alignment. You know, are we living our lives in a way that's congruent with who we want to be, that's congruent with helping create a better world, that's congruent with not hurting or wounding anybody else? So beliefs in themselves don't really have a lot of power unless they're deeply aligned with our best values with our integrity, with who we want to be in the world, for sure. Yeah, and I'm wondering how this can be practiced when we have traumas, like childhood traumas, where our beliefs and values, they are distorted. So that, like you said earlier, we need to address that first in a way, the trauma first, um, in order to create a new, beliefs, a new belief system. Um, and um, I want to talk to you about the first part of your book, which is uh, to become our own best friend. That's a wonderful promise. So how do we become our own best friend is my first question. And then tell me about some strategies that are highly effective in doing that. We simply talk to ourselves in a loving, encouraging, kind, thoughtful way. I say to myself all the time, I love you, buddy. You can do it. I'm behind you. It may sound cocky. I know I'm no better than anybody else. We're all worthwhile human beings. I don't say any of that from a place of arrogance or separateness. Separateness. I just cheer myself on. Only I know what I really need to hear to feel better or heal some old wound. There's things that maybe I'm ashamed of that I don't want to talk with anybody about. I mean, it's not like I'm not robbing banks or something, but things maybe I regret in the past. And I can talk to myself in a gentle, soothing way about that. The problem is people don't do enough of it. And I tell, say to my clients all the time, imagine you're standing underneath Niagara Falls and the water is just cascading over you. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people haven't heard of the term neuroplasticity, which is how we rewire our brain, brains by how we think, by our perspectives. 
We all need to do just more of it. We need to do it continually, constantly. I have my clients do this, do role plays in, in my office. I have my clients write positive affirmations out and put them on their mirror or on their front seat of the car. It really needs to be a way of life. If somebody spent their entire lives putting themselves down, a couple of positive statements aren't going to make a difference. We have to do it continually. Um, and so what I often do is help clients figure out what their deepest pain or, or maybe what are the beliefs, what are the thoughts that they're suffering from. And then I have them develop a specific mantra, like somebody who's maybe somebody's felt like, well, I'm not smart enough. Well, maybe their mantra is I am smart enough. And, and anyway, I'm worthwhile either way. So you mentioned people have been through trauma before. Many times it's identifying, again, the beliefs that are causing the pain and helping them create a mantra that they can use to counteract that. And I do a lot of guided visualizations with people in my office where I actually take them to their peaceful place and then repeat whatever healing mantra they've developed. So it's just, it's encouraging. It's cheering ourselves on. It's, it's not very complicated. Again, most people just don't do it enough to make a difference. So it's a daily practice in a way, right, Nate? I would say it's more, it's even more. It's a minute, but then it's <laughs> just something all the time. I, I don't <laughs> continually talk to myself, but I, but I often do. And if I'm doing something difficult, I might say, hang in there, buddy. You got this. You know, it's going to be okay. I just, I love doing it, you know. And, and again, I know I'm, I'm, no, I'm no better than anybody else. It's not about arrogance. It's just about giving ourselves some inner peace and happiness, really. Right. And that also comes from the understanding about the human DNA, the way we are wired in a way to um, to focus on the negative. They call negative bias. Right. So that's a more reason to practice all the time because it's easier to focus on the negative. Absolutely. Yeah, our, our minds are like Velcro for the negative, as Rick Hansen says all the time in his book. Absolutely. Right. So that's a very good uh, fact to know about ourselves as, as human beings. Sure. So let's talk about some of the um, dysfunctional beliefs that you uh, outline in your book. I have uh, selected some of them. Uh, the first one is don't allow others to define us. You mentioned that one. Talk to me about how do we balance having our own, holding on to our own identity and at the same time, pleasing others and connecting deeply with others without losing who we are. Yeah. I think a, a big part of it in terms of others is when they give us feedback, asking ourselves, is this helpful? Not ignoring it, that can lead to arrogance and narcissism, but asking ourselves, is this useful? But not letting people define us. You know, you know this very well from, you know, the books I, I that you've written, that I've read that you have written, I, I know you're very familiar with all this territory, but early on, people develop subconscious beliefs about ourselves based on how our parents treat us. You know, imagine a five-year-old is lying on the couch watching TV and his mom or dad comes home and yells at him. Well, he's not going to think, oh, I'm a lovable person. My parents are just having a bad day. He or she's going to think there's something wrong with me. And so what we need to do is to stop absorbing other people's projections onto us. If they have some valid feedback, fine. But recognizing other people's opinions about us usually say more about those other people than ourselves. That's where I trust again, our voice and trusting our authentic selves comes in. And paradoxically, the less we project onto other people to meet our needs, the better relationships we can have because we don't wear them out. 
because we're not looking for them to cure us of something we can only give ourselves. So it actually frees us up to appreciate our relationships more without weighing them down with our own projections. It's very freeing. It's hard to do, but it's very freeing. Yes, I agree. And you mentioned in the book something very interesting about how we take responsibility for other people's negative feelings and we feel guilty about it. This is something that sometimes, not always, I'm faced with. Talk to me about that and how, is, how can we practice not feeling this way, not taking responsibility for other people's negative emotions? I've struggled with this for years. And actually, I've come up with a visualization that's really helpful. I visualize I'm a screen door in a stream or a river, and I encounter other people's upsetness. I'm aware of it. I can respond to it and minister to it and encourage them, but I let it flow through me because I realize if I absorb all of it, it's not actually helpful for them then maybe they feel guilty that they've made me feel bad by their pain. It's a very, very important question because we need to have empathy. We need to be loving and compassionate and caring. We don't want to discard other people's feelings. But it took me many, many years to learn we actually do them a favor when we don't get all bogged down in what they're feeling. Um, we need to keep our own spirits so we have something to give them back. Of course, it's only human. I mean, if your husband is having a really bad day, as a loving wife, of course, you're going to feel a little bit of his pain. The flip side is if you allow his pain to get you to such a low level that you're not able to be there for him, you're not doing him any favors. Wow. And this is another practice for life moment by moment, right, Nate? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's, a, it's a tough one. Yeah. But, you know, I wrestle with it all the time. And it doesn't mean I don't feel. You know, I've worked with a lot of people that have been through severe trauma. It does. I mean, I've cried with clients. It doesn't mean I don't feel their pain. And of course, it's important for, important for trauma survivors to allow themselves to feel everything they're feeling. I have a very different approach to trauma survivors. I would never say to somebody who just had a terrible trauma, oh, just love yourself. That's too simplistic. I have to sit with them as they're mourning and healing. And then eventually they may get to a point where they're able to use, you know, the self-care. But I've worked with a lot of people who've had severe trauma. And it, sometimes it takes years to help to get them to the point where they can find some peace again. But yeah, we can't absorb all the pain in the world. You know, we're better off doing something about it. In my book, I mentioned, you know, if you read about starving kids in some place in the world and just feel bad about it, you're not helping them very much. They'd be better off if you didn't feel bad and just send them some money or food. You know, we don't really help other people by feeling bad. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's a fine line. It's a good question. Yeah, and especially letting those feelings to get to us in that way that we become paralyzed. You know, we cannot even help help ourselves. Right. I agree. Um, staying with the theme of dysfunctional beliefs, perfectionism and how perfectionism is a trap. Well, when, when we're perfectionistic, we live our whole lives in scarcity because we feel we can never measure up. And so many people look to the outside world for their esteem. So, the, you know, the guy thinks, gee, I'll be happy when I, I find a girlfriend or a wife. And, and then he finds one and he's overjoyed, but, but that's not enough. He wants her to, to, to get a job or do, the, do whatever. It's a trap we set for ourselves. And the thing a lot of people don't realize is that when we let go of being perfectionistic and just value and appreciate all the aspects of our lives and love ourselves deeply, we're actually 
have more energy to reach our goals. I see perfectionism is very, very limiting because it just leaves people again with this sense of scarcity, never achieving, never measuring up. And I think capitalism certainly perpetuates that because people think everybody else has more than, than they do. So I often say to clients, what are you afraid would happen if you let go of all of your perfectionism? And they usually say, well, maybe I wouldn't be motivated to get up in the morning. And I always say to them, okay, try letting go of your perfectionism. And if you spend all day in bed, you know, <laughs> eating chips and washing soap operas, you can go back to beating up on yourself, but it never happens. It's amazing to me as people let go of their perfectionism, how much happier they are and how much more energy they have to actually reach their goals. Yeah, and that you use the word that's very powerful. It's a powerful state of mind and state of being. Letting go, surrender. Yes. The other one's acceptance. Yes. Like you say, if we can try them on, it can change everything. Everything. Absolutely. So there's another topic that you um, that I'm very interested in because I know the uh, the effects, the negative effects of this state of mind, and that is being a victim, feeling that we are victims. So the victim mentality. Well, just I'm just curious, what, why is this the most important one for you? Yeah, because I have been through a lot of traumas as a child. And I always thought this way, why me? Why is this happening to me? What's a lot of this victimhood thoughts and ideas? My life was just basically driven by those thoughts up to 37 years. Well, I'm so sorry you had those experiences and I'm so overjoyed. I mean, reading your books, what you've been able to accomplish and you've really inspired me and so many other people, you know, with your with your powerful story. Um, it's very challenging for me when I work with somebody who feels like a total victim because I haven't walked in their shoes. I, you know, my parents didn't get along very well, but I wasn't really, I wasn't abused as a kid. And, and so I never want to appear to be insensitive um, in, in any way. But it's just not a helpful belief system, as you say, to always to feel like we're a victim all the time. And people are incredibly resilient. In fact, many of the happiest and most peaceful people I know have been through the most and have risen and, and, and overcome you know, what they faced. It's a difficult challenge. And I would never want to be simplistic about it. And, and you know, I'd love to talk with you more about your own efforts to get where you are today, although certainly I've learned a lot from, from your wonderful books. But I think it's It's just a very, very toxic notion that that we, we can't do anything to change our lives. And, you know, many people have read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And, you know, it's an inspiration for so many people. And and many people even listening to this are probably familiar with this great quote. But but he said he he realized the only thing the Nazis couldn't take away from him was his freedom to choose the sort of person he wanted to be. So even in the most miserable of human conditions, he found he could still be a loving, kind person. And I figure if Viktor Frankl can do that in the middle of Auschwitz, <laughs> you know, right. we all can do it to some extent. And probably there's no nothing more toxic than to self to self-compassion and, and, and self-love than to walk around feeling like we're always a victim because that makes us, leads us to be self-absorbed in a lot of ways. This doesn't mean that I don't empathize with people's struggles. This doesn't mean that my heart doesn't go out to people that have suffered abuse and, and, and neglect. I'm with them all the way. I'm, I'm their guide in their journey. But as you say, it's a very self-limiting belief because it blocks us from our, our healing capacities, I guess. 
Yes, and it did for me. I think one of the things that I learned was to focus less, much, much less, on the problems or change my perspective, see problems as challenges. Exactly. And that would get me excited to kind of recreate my life. That's beautiful. I just became the creator of my own reality. I took responsibility for my own happiness. And that's what your son said is just so true. Uh, when you give that responsibility to ourselves, so we take it back, we go back to that space that I am responsible for my own life, then everything changes. Yeah, everything changes. We're not looking for people to rescue us. <laughs> not say your life is such a beautiful example of that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, coming from that space to this space, it just feels so much better that once we try on, like you say it, I love this idea, then it becomes a lifestyle, way of living. Like, wow, this is so much more empowering. That's right. It feels good. Yeah, than being a victim and seeing everything as a problem. This is something that I practice every day, too. It's becoming not the victim of anything that happens. It could be in circumstances even, like what's happening now in the world. But just seeing this as an opportunity to create. Oh, I can create a new life out of this. Wow. It's almost like we're fit for joy, you know? <laughs> yeah, and that's the message I got when I wrote my book, The Inspiration. That was the thought. You're perfectly equipped to be joyful, to be happy right now, and don't waste any more time. Absolutely. So another point that you mentioned, that we are not alone with our own problems. That has to do with support, looking for support and being open enough. Talk to me about this, um, this belief most of us have that we are alone with our own problems. Yeah, I, I often think about this. Since human beings began walking around on two feet 200,000 years ago, we've all encountered the same types of things, disease, death, loss of abilities. Um, losing a child, having depression, having anxiety, um, having medical problems. In many ways, we're all, there's a lot of unique variations of the challenges people face. But a lot of times, I feel a lot of peace and, and, and deep connection, just realizing whatever I'm feeling, whatever I'm experiencing, people have experienced this through thousands and thousands of generations. We're not alone. There's a sea of humanity out there of, of, of commonality that brings us, that can bring us all together. Um, and, and so many times I, I say to my clients, I don't, I don't want to make them feel like they're not unique or that their situation isn't something that, you know, is, is challenging for them in, in their own particular way. But I, I so often encourage them to talk with, with other people, maybe get a, join a support group, people that have been through the same thing. Um, it's so powerful. It's so powerful. I mean, how many people have overcome childhood neglect or trauma and, and, and gone on to live great lives? How many, how many people have learned lessons through tragedy? So I, I, on a really deep level, I, I think we're all united in just sort of the human challenges that we face, for sure. Yeah. And that goes back to what you said about that mindset of victimhood makes us live in our own heads. Now we feel lonely because the question is why it happened to me, why this is all about me. So that goes back to being selfish and perhaps narcissistic. Right? Exactly. And that leads to my next question. We're almost at the end of the interview and I have so many other questions, but I won't be able to ask all of them. Let me select some going with the flow here about narcissism and self-worth. 
So how do we know when we are practicing self-love and self-worth and not selfishness? And I would say we simply need to look at our behavior. This is really comes down to behavior. If our attitudes, the way we treat other people, leave other people to feel bad or wounded um, or disempowered, then that's narcissistic. That's selfish. If our self-compassion leads us to be more loving, more kind, more tolerant, more abundant, then that's obviously not being narcissistic. The proof is all in the pudding. It's like so what we, what we do in the world. You know, it's what we do in the yeah. world. It's it's how we treat it. Really, really comes down to how we treat other people. Right? It's not very complicated. Mm. Do we radiate peace and love and, and kindness or are we critical and judgmental and, and try to make people feel bad? It's not very complicated. And this is stuff hopefully all of us learned in kindergarten, you know? Yeah, I agree. That's kind of uh, easy to assume that people, when they help others, they're not being narcissistic they're in that space of love. But as you know, that can also be a um, false belief that by giving love, you will receive love. So it's not really that you love and you are unconditionally, at least you're not doing that. Right. You're expecting something in return, which is not, is not healthy, in my opinion. Right. And another point I wanted to make about self-love, it's easy to know that we are not in the space of selfishness or narcissism when we don't feel like we are more important than others. We see ourselves as part of the, the world as a community. There's no separation. So that's another way I can tell pretty fast. <laughs> yes. Self-importance. That's not there. Yes. Yeah. So um, my last question, I guess, about spirituality. You don't talk much about it in your book. You mentioned the inner light, which is highly spiritual intuition. I'm just wondering if you also consider a form of self-compassion, practicing the belief that there is a God out there that loves us unconditionally in the sense of religious people and the idea of God as a separate being. Sure. It's, it's sort of whatever, whatever works. I, if, if it's helpful to believe there's a more traditional God, that people sort of feel like there's this being that, you know, people go to church. Absolutely. That's very, very powerful. And for a lot of people, it's it really uh, highly religious, highly spiritual people. It's really their belief that God does love them that frees them up to love themselves. Um, uh, my mom uh, never felt very good about who she was as a person, and my dad was pretty hard on her. And she went to church one time, and there's a there's a hymn, um, "Just the way I am, Lord, just the way I am," and she remembers singing this and tears were just flowing out of her eyes because she was always so hard on herself. So even though I don't talk about our traditional sort of sense of God in my book that much, because my Quaker heritage is more about the inner light, it's absolutely a huge, huge component of many people's sense of self, maybe the biggest you know, prayer, uh, feeling a power greater than ourselves. Um, w w without a doubt, I, there's probably nothing more <laughs> in the history of human experience that's given people a sense of meaning and hope than some belief in God, some belief in a high, highly spiritual force, and, and whether you're in AA or whether you're sitting in church. So if, it, if that leads people to feel wonderful about themselves in the world, great, more power to you. Yes, yeah. And it might be a step, a first step to um, come to that place of taking responsibility for your own happiness too and loving yourself beyond this understanding that there's um, something out there that loves us unconditionally. That's huge. 
That's yeah, huge. Yeah, I agree. I love your um, chapter 11 that you talk about being in the moment, uh, flowing with life. Uh, you mentioned meditation, surrender to what is. So this is always so empowering, this, uh, these subjects, um, these topics. And I wish we could talk more about it, but perhaps in a different conversation. Would you like to add anything else or read a passage in your book before I ask you my final questions, Nate? I guess the final thing I'd like to add um, is that even though it's imperative that we love ourselves, that, that we're compassionate in, in, in the moment, it's again, it's probably even more important that we spread this around to people in the world. I mean, yeah, I mean, if somebody wants to buy a, a go live in a cave someplace and love themselves deeply and meditate all day long, more power to you. I'm, I'm not going to judge you. But it's the men and women that have used their deep self-love and compassion and light to change the world are the people that I look up to the most. And so just for the final time, this isn't all about being self-centered. This is about using our energies just like you've done and so many other people have done to help create a better world and, and spread love and light. Yes, I agree. I agree. A hundred percent agree. <laughs> so my final questions, how do you define success? What is to be successful to you? I think to be true to oneself, to live the life that one wants to live, uh, to be nurturing if we're parents, to give our kids the space to grow and become their best selves. It's not about materialism, making money, having boats, having a beach house. It's certainly not about winning awards. It's really about how we treat other people. You know, there's a great Martin Luther King quote. I can't think of it exactly, but it's something about like not everybody can achieve um, greatness in terms of the outside world, but we can all be great in terms of what we give to other people. So success is what kind of a human being we are in this world, I guess. And are we true to ourselves, are true to our deepest beliefs, our deepest needs? Yeah, and I love the work you do because it focuses a lot on self-awareness and self-knowledge and self-compassion, which means from that space, we can truly help others. Um, what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? I had a fair amount of shame uh, uh, as a kid. Uh, my parents yelled and screamed a lot. And my biggest fear was that I was going to grow up to be like my father. And, and I used to have a bit of a temper. I wasn't always as zen as I may come off at this moment. In fact, I don't think my wife would think I'm as zen as I'm coming off at this moment. But, you know, <laughs> I had a lot of shame about that. It took me years to overcome my temper. And what I realized was my shame wasn't helping anybody. So I've worked really, really hard not to be emotionally reactive. But I grew up with a lot of that. So I think that's the biggest challenge I have faced, to be able to take a step back and, and not be emotionally active in situations. And it's really freed me up to be my best self and to be to be the sort of person I want to be. But it's it's certainly been a challenge at times. Yeah. And that's interesting how all these uh, negative responses to life or whatever, whatever happens around us, it blocks, like you just said, it frees energy. But those negativities, they block the ener our energy very much. Um, my other final question is about healing. What is another word for healing? I would say another word for healing is to simply recognize the forces, the beliefs, the conditioning that are holding us back. And once we eliminate those beliefs, whether it's a victim complex 
whether it's arrogance, we automatically heal. We're already healed at a deep level. We all, all have an inner child inside of us that's kind of pure. I don't believe in original sin. If you look at a baby, I don't believe that they're somehow carrying evil or whatever within them. So healing is there. Once we get rid of whatever is impairing our ability to get there, and you know whether it's self-criticism, whether it's behaviors that lead us to be ashamed of, of who we are. So healing is spontaneous. We don't, in a way, we don't really have to do anything to heal. We're already perfect as we are. We just need to get rid of whatever's blocking our ability to manifest ourselves and help us grow into our best selves. Yeah. So it's more like unlearning than learning in a way. I'm sorry, that's kind of a long answer, but it's, it's a great question. I had to think about it for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Great answer, though. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? I think about that a lot. And I don't know that I would. I don't know that I would. I, I might go on an, to an island someplace and sit under a palm tree. But I don't know that I would, to tell you the truth. I, I, I think about that. I think, you know, what if you had a year to live? What if you had a day to live? And, and you know, if you're lying on your deathbed, what regrets would you have? And, and that thought, it, it may sound, you know, a little bit morbid or whatever, but the, the idea that, sure, we could all die at any moment actually compels me to work even harder at living the life I want. So I, I, I think I'm very fortunate. I feel very lucky for the gifts I've been given in life. And I don't, I don't think I would change a lot, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I like that. I love the answer. Every time I hear, I wouldn't change a thing. Right. And it's pretty fast, too. <laughs> then it's, that's when I know they're living the life. Yeah. The, the purpose yeah, of whatever it is for this experience. Do you believe in life after death? I'm not sure. I, I It's fun to think there might be something out there. I just don't know. I just don't know. It's something I've wondered a lot about and, and I would love to know. I'm not sure anybody's ever really known. I think there's something out there. I'm just not sure what it is at this point. Yeah. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today, Nate? I know that human beings are basically good and that we can appeal to that goodness within ourselves and within other people. And I know that life is an incredible opportunity for growth and healing um, and appreciation and joy. And uh, finally, I know that all I have is this moment. And what I choose to do with this moment is what makes the difference in the quality of my life. Yeah, yes. Thank you so much for your wisdom, your presence, for this great conversation. It has been fun, fun in a spiritual way, I call it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, and thank you so much for all you do for the world. Thank you. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? My website is www.achievingselfcompassion.com. And on my website, you can find links to some of my YouTube videos, to my Facebook uh, page. Uh, you mentioned my book earlier, Achieving Self-Compassion, Giving Yourself the Gifts of Happiness and Inner Peace. That's on Amazon and other bookstores. Um, if anybody listening is interested in self-compassion coaching, I do this over the phone or over Skype, and you can sign up for it on my website. 
So, uh, and there's a lot of other good materials out there on self-compassion as well. So if anybody's interested, you can look up my stuff or look up other people's stuff. It's a, it's sort of a movement at this point, which is wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much again, Nate. And we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Nate Terrell, please visit his website, AchievingSelfCompassion.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.